Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools, and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. It's difficult to get critics to agree on things. One man's masterpiece is another man's abject failure. One literary work that is widely recognized by most critics and historians as the greatest literary work in the Italian language is Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. Born Durante Alighieri in 1265, the poet who had come to be known as Dante was something of a maverick for his time. Whereas the overwhelming majority of poetry back in his day was written in Latin, thereby making it only accessible to the affluent and highly educated, Dante wanted his work to be read by the masses. So instead he chose to make the highly unorthodox decision to write his masterpiece in Italian. This radical choice made Dante's work so popular that it actually cemented Italian as the primary language spoken throughout the entire country. The Divine Comedy itself is broken into three books, each depicting a character based on Dante himself, as he travels through all aspects of the afterlife on a path toward God. The three books detail Purgatory, Heaven, and the first book, which is undoubtedly the most famous of them all, Hell. Dante's Inferno has remained one of the most influential depictions of Hell in history. Countless books, movies, cartoons, even video games have been made based around Dante's vision of hell. Dante envisioned a surprisingly organized version of the underworld, broken into nine concentric rings within the earth, each more terrifying than the last. It is, as he describes it, the realm of those who have rejected spiritual values by yielding to bestial appetites or violence, or by perverting their human intellect to fraud or malice against their fellow men. Despite the commonly held vision most people have of hell being a fiery pit, the ninth circle of Dante's Inferno is actually quite the opposite. At its center is a massive frozen lake containing each of hell's residents who have made it that far. There at the very center of that lake is Dante's version of Satan, an enormous demon frozen up to the middle of his chest in the ice. This Satan has three faces, and a pair of gigantic bat-like wings affixed under each chin. And as Satan beats those wings, he creates an icy wind that surrounds and freezes him and all the sinners who have ventured this far. Despite the enduring popularity of Dante's vision of the underworld, for some reason the idea of hell being a frozen wasteland never quite caught on. 
Ask pretty much anyone to describe hell, and they'll likely tell you it's a place full of fire and brimstone. As a consequence, we tend to think of fire and being burned alive as the ultimate torture. But the cold can be just as terrible. That bone-chilling cold that sends your teeth chattering until they feel like they might break. The kind of cold that freezes your clothing solid and turns your skin black as you watch helplessly as your extremities die on your still-living body. If the ninth circle of hell is full of frozen sinners who have done terrible things to their fellow man, then you only need to hear the story of the crew of the ship called the Aaron and the monstrous things they did to a group of young stowaways to know that hell is a place on earth. I'm Nate Hale, snuggled up warm and cozy in a dead Tauntaun's belly, and this is The Conspirators. The Aaron was a wooden trading vessel that set sail out of Greenock, Scotland on April 7, 1868, bound for Quebec, Canada. It carried with it a cargo of coal and oakum, a kind of tarred fiber used in shipbuilding for caulking or packing the joints. The ship was managed by the Greenock firm of Ferguson and Hendry, and her captain was an experienced 28-year-old sailor named Robert Watt, a native of Saltcoats in Ayrshire and by most accounts a competent seaman who got along well with his crew. His chief mate was James Kerr, three years older than Watt, and in general a tougher, more unfeeling character than the captain. He was also Watt's brother-in-law. The ship set sail down the River Clyde behind a tugboat, as was the commonly accepted procedure of the day. During that time, the ship was searched for any stowaways that might be hiding aboard. People stowing away for a free trip across the ocean was a constant problem for ships bound for North America. Early on in their voyage, two young boys were found hiding below deck. The pair were dragged roughly up on the main deck, then forcibly transferred to the tugboat to be returned back to shore. It turns out, they were the lucky ones. By the time the errand was out to sea, Captain Watts settled into his perch on the bridge, glad to be rid of the stowaways. Imagine his annoyance then when Chief Mate Kerr came before him dragging along two 11-year-old boys the ship's carpenter had found hiding down below. The boys were named John Paul and Hugh McEwen. Captain Watt grabbed them both by the scruff of the neck and shouted at them what were they doing in his ship. Please, sir, Paul cried out, we want to be sailors. The captain laughed at them contemptuously. They were scrawny kids, both a little rough around the edges. And although McEwen was fairly well attired, Paul was dressed in little more than rags and was barefoot. Both boys were very hungry. Captain Watt appeared to show a soft spot for the boys. He ordered that they be taken to the kitchen and fed. There the ship's cook gave them each a warm meal of tea and hash. Then they were allowed to sleep in a sail locker. It wasn't long after that, though, that five more stowaways emerged from hiding. There were two 12-year-olds, Hugh McGinnis and Peter Curry, two 16-year-olds, James Bryson and David Brand, and 22-year-old Bernard Barney Riley. Captain Watt wasn't terribly happy about the prospect of having seven extra mouths to feed, but at least at first he made an attempt to accommodate them. 
He tasked the cook with coming up with an ample supply of rations for each young man. Then he set the boys to work, washing down the decks and giving them other menial tasks, usually done by deckhands. But the young men were all seasick right from the start. And things only got worse after they were at sea for a few days and hit a patch of rough water. Chief Mate Kerr saw one of the boys vomiting up some bits of meat. To which Kerr then instructed they all be cut off from the ship's supply of beef. As far as he was concerned, none of them were going to get any more meat if they were just going to throw it all back up. It was clear from the start that Kerr held some sort of grudge against the stowaways. With the exception of Peter Curry, whose father was a friend of his. Whenever he walked past any of the boys on the deck, he'd kick them without provocation. It was worse when he found them at fault in some way. Then he'd beat them mercilessly until they were teary-eyed and bloody. A letter dated June 10, 1868, written by one of the crew after they reached Quebec, told a harrowing story. The boys were thinly clad and were not able to stand the severe cold. The men could hardly stand it, let alone them. Two of the little ones had their bare feet. And as we were going so far to the northward, amongst hail, frost, snow, and raining continually, none of them would keep on deck to work. As soon as the mate missed them, he went with a rope's end in hand and ordered them out, and as they came out, gave them a walloping, and pretty often very severely. The captain never interfered with the mate and them till one good day the hatches were all opened and the crew, on going to shift some oakum and coils of rope where the stowaway slept, found them all besmeared with filth. Then he did give them a thrashing, and made all hands clean it up. Soon after cutting off their supply of meat, Kerr then cut off all of the other food to the young men as well, except for a rare few biscuits. Some days they might get one biscuit each, other days one half a biscuit. Some days there would only be one biscuit to be split between four boys. The ship's cook couldn't stand seeing the boys starve, so he slipped them some food when he could, but even that wasn't enough to sustain them. 16-year-old James Bryson caught the worst of the beatings. Much of the filth in the hold below was his. He'd experienced the worst stomach troubles of them all ever since the day they set sail. One day, Kerr told Bryson to remove all his clothes except his vest and trousers. Then he whipped the boy mercilessly with a half-inch thick rope. By the time he was finished, Bryson lay crying and bloody on the deck. Captain Watt, who seemed to become more cruel over time with Kerr's influence ordered the boy to remove the rest of his clothes and lie down on the deck stark naked. He ordered a seaman named Robert Hunter to draw buckets of seawater and pour them over the boy's shivering body. The captain then took a coarse brush used for scrubbing the deck and used it to scrub the boy's already shredded skin. This was repeated over and over again, harder each time. Soon the captain ordered the other 16-year-old David Brand to take the brush and scrub his friend down. James Bryson tried to crawl away in agony. They held him down, and the torture went on until the captain and his mate were satisfied. But even when they were finished with him, the captain then forced him to stand stark naked on the forecastle head in the freezing cold. After an hour of this, the captain handed him his vest and jacket, but even then the boy had to remain standing there until nightfall. Each of the boys endured constant beatings day after day. When the weather finally calmed, the captain ordered the boys and several crew members to head below deck and tidy up. Then it was discovered that one of the barrels of meat had been broken into and some of the contents were missing. The captain flew into a rage 
He demanded to know which one of them had stolen the meat. The terrified boys blamed the sailors, and the sailors blamed the boys. The captain sided with his crew, and he ordered the boys be put in irons for 24 hours without food. In early May 1868, as the errand began to approach land, they entered a treacherous field of ice. On May 9th, they drifted into St. George's Bay near the coast of Newfoundland. The ship moored itself on the ice, and the captain and mate went off board to inspect their surroundings. The starving boys took this opportunity to forage for food. David Brand snuck into the captain and mate's cabin and filled his pocket with all the scraps of biscuit he could find. When he slipped out, he told James Bryson about his score. Bryson snuck inside the cabin and helped himself to a handful of currants he found in a keg. But the captain and the mate returned just as Bryson was leaving the cabin. Kerr spotted him in the forbidden area of the ship. He ordered John McLean, the steward, to search both Bryson and Brand. Brand's pockets were empty. He'd already devoured the scraps of biscuit. But Bryson was caught red-handed with a pocket full of currants. The captain ordered that the stolen currants be distributed among the other boys. Then Bryson was ordered to strip naked. They shoved him down face first on the frozen planking. While Kerr held Bryson down, the captain flogged him repeatedly with a thick rope. When he was finished, he passed the rope to Kerr, and the two traded places. Kerr beat him even longer than the captain had done. A few days later, while the ship was still moored in the ice, the cook threw some potato peelings over the side. The starving boys climbed over the rails and began scavenging for every scrap they could find. A couple days after that, some flour went missing from a barrel, and as a result, the boys were all denied any food for 24 hours. The following day, the captain ordered the stowaways to go ashore onto the ice. It's difficult to say why he did this. Perhaps he just wanted to scare them at that point. Perhaps he was working himself up for what he was about to do. He made the boys stand there for a long while as the icy wind whipped around them, and the ice below cracked and groaned like something alive. Later, when they were finally back on board, 22-year-old Barney Riley broached the idea to Bryson, the idea that they should make a break for it across the ice. They were about 20 miles from dry land. Riley was willing to take his chances if it meant he could find his way to somewhere with food and warm shelter. He had dreams of making his way to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and working on the railroad there. Bryson agreed with him that it would be better to die crossing the ice than to endure one more day of torture aboard the Aaron. There are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly. Okay, here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck before it was stolen. That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals, like most of the things in your catalytic converter. I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes. You know, prepare yourself for heat wave Lucifer. I don't think I can prepare myself for that. Look, we like surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? 
No, I, I guess that's a point. <laughs> so the podcast is called Big Picture Science, and you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. We are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen. The land was barely visible from the ship. If you squinted, you could just make out a faint gray outline on the horizon that might have been land. Or perhaps it was just a mirage. Captain Watt caught wind of Riley's plan to leave. And instead of acting enraged, he offered the boy the use of his telescope to get a better look at what the shore offered. Riley was afraid to take him up on his offer. The captain assured him there were houses and people there right along the shore. Why, a sturdy young man like himself could walk there in a day. There was a thick lump in Riley's throat that prevented him from responding. He nodded nervously at the captain and wondered if what the man was telling him could possibly be true. The young men got together in the area below deck where they slept, and Riley told them of the captain's assurances that salvation was waiting for them across the ice. Riley and Bryson were both eager and ready to make the journey. The other boys weren't so sure. But Captain Watt made their minds up for them, no doubt at Kerr's insistence, although Kerr was suspiciously not present when the captain showed up during their meeting with an ultimatum. He told them they no longer had sufficient supplies to provide for them all the way to Quebec. He said there was another ship named the Myrtle, which was moored just a mile or two away. And that if he headed over there, the Myrtle's captain had food waiting for them. The boys doubted there was another ship nearby since none of them could see one. But none of them dared tell the captain he was lying to his face. When several of the boys expressed their desire to stay aboard the Aaron, Captain Watt put his foot down and said they either left the ship for the Myrtle, or there'd be no more meat for them until they reached Quebec. Barney Riley and James Bryson were willing to jump ship right then and there. All the rest of the boys were terrified and crying. Peter Curry was the only boy the captain would allow to remain on the ship, since his father was a friend of the chief mate. When the boys protested further, the captain snapped and ordered them to get off his ship. John Paul, who was the smallest of all of them, ran and hid inside a seaman's chest until the captain soon found him and dragged him back out. Up on the main deck, the captain and his mate shoved the boys over towards the ship's rail. Looking out from there, all you could see was a long white expanse of the ice spreading out in all directions. The steel-gray sky was thick with clouds. The wind howled and cut through them like knives. Hugh McEwen had taken ill and had started spitting up blood sometime during the trip. He begged the captain not to put him out on the ice. The captain told him he might as well die out there rather than dirtying up his ship. Although many of the 24 crew members privately objected to what was going on, none of them spoke up as the captain forced the six boys over the rail and onto the ice. John Paul was the last to go. He clung desperately to the rail until the captain smacked him off with a belaying pin and he fell onto the ice. Each young man was given a small ration of coffee, a tiny piece of bread, and a biscuit before they were sent on their way. Riley, Brand, Bryson, and McEwen were all fairly well clothed. Although Paul had a coat, he was barefoot. McGinnis was not only barefoot, but the few clothes he had on were little more than shredded rags through which you could see his bare skin. It was just after eight in the morning when the group set out in the direction the captain had told him where the ship called the Myrtle allegedly was. They traveled for about 200 yards, 
but when they still couldn't see a ship in the distance, they decided to change course and head in the direction of shore. The ice was rough and jagged. It was tough going for all of them, but especially for the two barefoot boys. It wasn't a solid ice sheet either. When they came across a gap in the ice, they had to leap from one ice block to another. Sometimes when the gap was too great, they had to climb onto a floating piece of ice and use it as a raft to paddle toward the next block. All of the boys fell into the frigid water at one time or another. Back on board the Aaron, the men were talking nervously among themselves about what would happen to the boys out there. Captain Watt placed a lookout on the masthead to keep an eye on the boys from the distance, and even took up a post himself at one point. It appears he may have begun to have second thoughts about his actions, because he suggested sending some men out to retrieve the boys to his chief mate. Kerr shrugged it off, and told him the boys would probably return on their own, only they didn't. And the next morning, as the ice continued to break up, the captain ordered the crew to set sail and continue on their journey for Quebec. Meanwhile, the boys were fighting for their lives every step of the way. There were times when they were up to their necks in freezing water. The youngest boys were having the hardest time keeping up. Twelve-year-old Hugh McEwen kept lagging behind. He fell into the water a couple of times as he staggered along, but Bryson was able to fish him out the first two times. He wasn't so lucky the third time he fell in. The boy went into the water, and the ice closed in over him. They never saw him again. They marched all day single file across the ice. By about 3 o'clock that afternoon, 12-year-old Hugh McGinnis fell to the ice crying for his mother. His bare feet were badly swollen. The other boys tried to get him back up onto his feet, but McGinnis couldn't walk anymore. None of them had the strength to carry him. They told him that if he didn't get up and walk, they'd have to leave him. The child begged them not to leave him, but they had no choice. If they stayed, they'd all die. All around them, the ice was breaking up further. Soon they might not even have a path to shore anymore. They could hear the little boy crying for his mother as they trudged farther and farther away. Until finally, they couldn't hear him at all anymore. The nearer they got to shore, the more treacherous the journey became due to all the broken ice. By now, all they could do was paddle across the ocean... By around 7 that evening, they reached the outer edge of the ice field, only to discover that a mile of open water lay between them and shore. They all wanted to scream in frustration. They could see the shore clearly now, so close, but still so far away. There in the distance, they could see houses along the rocky strip of land. Riley offered to swim for it, but they all knew he wouldn't stand a chance in his weakened condition. In the end, Riley and Brand each agreed to paddle their way to shore on separate blocks of ice, leaving Bryson and Paul behind. The two younger boys cried out for help while the two older boys paddled for shore. When Brand got about halfway to shore, the first bit of good luck any of them encountered finally happened. A woman appeared on the hillside. She peered out and saw the boys on the water and ran for help. Soon a group of fishermen climbed into a boat and set out to rescue the boys. They reached Brand first, then Riley, 
Soon they were able to sail over to the ice field and drag Bryson and Paul up into the boat as well. They brought the boys indoors at around 8 o'clock that night. Their clothes were frozen on their skin. Paul's bare feet were so bloody and swollen that he couldn't walk. All the boys were frostbitten to varying degrees, and they each suffered from snow blindness that lasted for another week. A search party went out looking for McGinnis and McEwen, but no sign of them was ever found. News spread quickly about what had happened to the boys who stowed away on the errand. When the errand itself finally reached Quebec, Captain Watt and Mate Kerr heard that some of the boys they put out on the ice survived. When the errand finally returned to Greenock on July 30th, the captain and his crew were met at the dock by an angry mob. Dozens of people stormed the ship out for blood. Watt and Kerr locked themselves in their cabin while angry townsfolk tried to batter their way in through the door. Soon the police arrived to disperse the mob and get the men safely off the ship. The following day, Watt and Kerr were led to the courthouse for questioning. All along the route, people shouted and peltered their vehicle with rocks. The two men were placed under arrest and put in jail pending their trial. Back in Canada, the boys were nursed back to health. Throughout the region, they were the main news story, and the locals pretty much adopted them and treated them as their own. As soon as he was able, Barney Riley took off for Halifax, where he eventually fulfilled his dream of finding a job working on the railroad. Brand, Bryson, and Paul were all put to work fishing and farming in the town of Sandy Point. Four months later, they were given free passage back home, where the captain of that ship was given instructions to treat them as well as he would his own children. On October 1st, 1868, the boys returned to Greenock and were met by a cheering crowd. They were the main witnesses in the trial against Captain Watt and Chief Mate Kerr. John Paul was so short he had to stand on a stool behind the witness box in order to be seen. Several crew members testified both for the prosecution and for the defense. Captain Watt reluctantly admitted on the stand that he told the boys to leave the ship, although he denied any cruel treatment on his part. Most of the sailors who testified could only offer the feeble excuse why none of them intervened in the events they witnessed, that they didn't want to cross the captain. Captain Watt and Mate Kerr claimed they put the boys off the boat because there wasn't enough food to feed them all. But both the ship's owners and the cook both testified that there were ample supplies aboard the ship to feed everyone. Robert Watt was found guilty of culpable homicide. With a recommendation of leniency for his previous good record, James Kerr pleaded guilty to assault. For the starvation and torture of seven children and the deaths of two of them, Watt received 18 months in prison, while Kerr received four months. Unsurprisingly, the public was outraged. Boos and hisses echoed through the courthouse as the sentence was read aloud. After serving their sentences, the two men returned to sailing. They served as captain and mate on different vessels. Watt died a couple of years after his release, while Kerr sailed for many years as a captain himself before retiring comfortably. As for the boys, Barney Riley continued living and working the rails in Halifax. James Bryson would eventually emigrate to the U.S., where he found work as a streetcar conductor. Peter Curry, the boy who was allowed to remain on the errand, died of consumption two years after returning home to Greenock. John Paul moved to Southampton, England, and became a foreman riveter. 
David Brand moved to Queensland, Australia, where he founded a successful engineering firm, Brand, Dryborough, and Burns. When he died, his obituary described him as having a heart of steel. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. This show has grown so much, and it's all because of you. We're now part of the Dark Myths Collective, and I hope you check out some of the other amazing shows that are part of this group. Shows like Astonishing Legends, in each episode, your hosts, Scott and Forrest, paint a vivid picture of all things strange and mysterious around the world. As always, I hope you continue to spread the word about this show, and invite your friends and family to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We're always available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again. 